Book One, Chapter Six, of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book One, Alison Device. Chapter Six, The Ordeal by Swimming. Bound hand and foot in the painful posture before described, roughly and insolently handled on all sides, in peril of her life from the frightful ordeal to which she was about to be subjected, the miserable captive was borne along on the shoulders of Jem Device and Sparshot, her long, fine chestnut hair trailing upon the ground, her white shoulders exposed to the insolent gaze of the crowd, and her trim holiday attire torn to rags by the rough treatment she had experienced. Nance Redfern, it has been said, was a very comely young woman, but neither her beauty, her youth, nor her sex had any effect upon the ferocious crowd, who were too much accustomed to such brutal and debasing exhibitions, to feel anything but savage delight in the spectacle of a fellow-creature so scandalously treated and tormented, and the only excuse to be offered for their barbarity is the firm belief they entertained that they were dealing with a witch. And when, even in our own day, so many revolting scenes are enacted to gratify the brutal passions of the mob, while prize-fights are tolerated, and wretched animals goaded on to tear each other in pieces, it is not to be wondered at that in times of less enlightenment and refinement greater cruelties should be practised. Indeed, it may be well to consider how far we have really advanced in civilization since then, for until cruelty, whether to man or beast, be wholly banished from our sports, we cannot justly reproach our ancestors, nor congratulate ourselves on our improvement. Nancy's cries of distress were only answered by jeers and renewed insults, and wearied out at length, the poor creature ceased struggling and shrieking, the dogged resolution she had before exhibited again coming to her aid. But her fortitude was to be yet more severely tested, revealed by the disorder of her habiliments, and contrasting strongly with the extreme whiteness of her skin, a dun-coloured mole was discovered upon her breast. It was pointed out to Potts by Jem Device, who declared it to be a witch-mark, and the spot from where her familiar drained her blood. "'This is one of the good helps to the discovery of a witch "'pointed out by our sovereign lord the king,' said the attorney, "'narrowly examining the spot. "'The one, saith our wise prince, is the finding of their mark "'and the trying of the insensibleness thereof. "'The other is their fleeting on the water. "'The water ordeal will come presently, "'but the insensibility of the mark might at once be attested.' "'Yea, that can soon be tried.' cried Jem, with a savage laugh, and taking a pin from his sleeve, the ruffian plunged it deeply into the poor creature's flesh. Nance winced, but she set her teeth hardly, and repressed the cry that must otherwise have been wrung from her. "'A clear witch!' cried Jem, drawing forth the pin. "'Not a drop of blood flows, and her feels nout!' "'Feel nout!' rejoined Nance, between her ground teeth. May have a pang as sharp in your cancered heart, you villain. After this barbarous test, the crowd, confirmed by it in their notions of Nan's guiltiness, hurried on, their numbers increasing as they proceeded along the main street of the village, leading towards the river. 
all the villagers left at home, rushing forth on hearing a witch was about to be swum, and when they came within a bowshot of the stream, Sparshot called to Bagley to lay hold of Nance, while he himself, accompanied by several of the crowd, ran over the bridge, the part he had to enact requiring him to be on the other side of the water. Meantime the main party turned down a little footpath, protected by a gate on the left, which led between garden hedges to the grassy banks of the Calder, and in taking this course they passed by the cottage of Elizabeth Device. Hearing the shouts of the rabble, little Jennet, who had been in no very happy frame of mind since she had been brought home, came forth, and seeing her brother, called out to him in her usual sharp tones, "'What's the matter, Jem? What'n you gotten there?' "'A witch,' replied Jem gruffly. "'Nance Redfern, Mother Chattox's granddaughter. Come and see her swarmy the colder.' Janet readily complied, for her curiosity was aroused, and she shared in the family feelings of dislike to Mother Chattox and her descendants. "'Is this Nance Redfern?' she cried, keeping close to her brother. "'I'm right glad you caught her at last. Ah, don't you find yourself, Nance?' "'Ill at ease, Janet,' replied Nance, with a bitter look. "'But ill becomes you to cheer me, lass, seeing as you're a born witch yourself.' "'Aha!' cried Potts, looking at the little girl. "'So this is a born witch, eh, Nance?' "'A brawn and bred witch,' rejoined Nance, "'just as her brother Jem here is a wizard, and the grandchildren are Mother Demdike a Pendle, the greatest witch in these parts, and children are best device, who's nigh much better. Ask me to witness again, and that's all.' "'Hold thee tongue, woman, or I'll drown thee,' muttered Jem, in a tone of deep menace. "'You canna modify the witch you call me,' rejoined Nance. "'Jennet's turn'll come as well as mine one of these days. Mark my words.' "'As far that I shall see you burned, you faggot,' cried Jennet, almost fiercely. "'You'n get the fiend's mark o' your sleeve,' cried Nance. "'I see it written in letters of blood.' "'That's when our cat scratted me,' replied Jennet, hiding her arm quickly. "'Good, very good,' observed Potts, rubbing his hands. "'Who but witches can be proof against witches?' saith our sagacious sovereign. "'I shall make something of this girl. She seems a remarkably quick child. Remarkably quick!' <laughs> By this time the party, having gained the broad flat mead through which the calder flowed, took their way quickly towards its banks, the spot selected for the ordeal lying about fifty yards above the weir where the current, ordinarily rapid, was checked by the dam, offering a smooth surface, and with considerable depth of water. If soft natural beauties could have subdued the hearts of those engaged in this cruel and wicked experiment, never was seen better calculated for the purpose than that under contemplation. Through a lovely green valley meandered the calder, now winding round some verdant knoll, now washing the base of lofty heights feathered with timber to their very summits, now lost amid thick woods, and only discernible at intervals by a glimmer amongst the trees. Immediately in front of the assemblage rose Whaley Nab, its steep sides and brow partly covered with timber, with green patches in the uplands where sheep and cattle fed. Just below the spot where the crowd were collected, the stream, here of some width, passed over the weir, and swept in a foaming cascade over the huge stones supporting the dam, 
giving the rushing current the semblance and almost the beauty of a natural waterfall. Below this the stream ran brawling on in a wider but shallower channel, making pleasant music as it went, and leaving many dry beds of sand and gravel in the midst, while a hundred yards lower down it was crossed by the arches of the bridge. Further still, a row of tall cypresses lined the bank of the river, and screened that part of the abbey converted into a residence by the Ashertons. And after this came the ruins of the refectory, the cloisters, the dormitory, the conventual church, and other parts of the venerable structure, overshadowed by noble lime-trees and elms. Lovelier or more peaceful scene could not be imagined. The green meads, the bright clear stream, with its white foaming weir, the woody heights reflected in the glassy waters, the picturesque old bridge, and the dark grey ruins beyond it, might have engaged the attention and melted the heart. Then, the hour when evening was coming on, and when each beautiful object, deriving new beauty from the medium through which it was viewed, exercised a softening influence, and awakened kindly emotions. To most, the scene was familiar, and therefore it could have no charm of novelty. To Potts, however, it was altogether new, but he was susceptible of few gentle impressions, and neither the tender beauty of the evening, nor the wooing loveliness of the spot, awakened any responsive emotion in his breast. He was dead to everything except the ruthless experiment about to be made. Almost at the same time that Jem Device and his party reached the near bank of the stream, the beadle and the others appeared on the opposite side. Little was said, but instant preparations were made for the ordeal. Two long coils of rope having been brought by Bagley, one of them was made fast to the right arm of the victim, and the other to the left. And this done, Jem Device, shouting to Sparshot to look out, flung one coil of rope across the river, where it was caught with much dexterity by the beadle. The assemblage then spread out on the bank, while Jem, taking the poor young woman in his arms, who neither spoke nor struggled, but held her breath tightly, approached the river. "'Dunna drown her, Jem,' said Jennet, who had turned very pale. "'Be quiet, wench,' rejoined Jem gruffly, and without bestowing further attention upon her, he let down his burden carefully into the water, and this achieved, he called out to the beadle, who drew her slowly towards him, while Jem guided her with the other rope. The crowd watched the experiment for a few moments in profound silence, but as the poor young woman, who had now reached the centre of the stream, still floated, being supported either by the tension of the cords, or by her woollen apparel, a loud shout was raised that she could not sink, and was therefore an undeniable witch. "'Steady, lads, steady a moment,' cried Potts, enchanted with the success of the experiment. "'Leave her where she is, that her buoyancy may be fully attested.' "'You know, masters,' he cried with a loud voice, "'the meaning of this water ordeal. "'Our sovereign lord and master the king, in his wisdom, "'hath graciously vouchsafed to explain the matter thus. "'Water,' he saith, "'shall refuse to receive them,' meaning witches, of course, "'in her bosom, that hath shaken off their sacred water of baptism, "'and wilfully refused the benefit thereof. "'It is manifest, you see, that this diabolical young woman— hath renounced her baptism, for the water rejecteth her. Non potest mergi, as Pliny saith. 
she floats like a cork, or as if the clear water of the calder had suddenly become like the slab salt waves of the dead sea in which nothing can sink. You behold the marvel with your own eyes, my masters?' "'Aye, aye,' returned Baggerly and several others. "'I'll be a witch for certain,' cried Jem Device. But as he spoke, chancing slightly to slacken the rope, the attention of which maintained the equilibrium of the body, the poor woman instantly sank. A groan, as much of disappointment as sympathy, broke from the spectators, but none attempted to aid her, and on seeing her sink, Jem abandoned the rope altogether. But assistance was at hand. Two persons rushed quickly and furiously to the spot. They were Richard and Nicholas Asherton. The iron bar had at length yielded to their efforts, and the first use they made of their freedom was to hurry to the river. A glance showed them what had occurred, and the younger Asherton, unhesitatingly plunging into the water, seized the rope dropped by Jem, and calling to the beadle to let go his hold, dragged forth the poor half-drowned young woman, and placed her on the bank, hewing asunder the cords that bound her hands and feet with his sword. But though still sensible, Nance was so much exhausted by the shock she had undergone, and her muscles were so severely strained by the painful and unnatural posture to which she had been compelled, that she was wholly unable to move. Her thumbs were blackened and swollen, and the cords had cut in the flesh, while blood trickled down from the puncture in her breast. Fixing a look of inexpressible gratitude upon her preserver, she made an effort to speak, but the exertion was too great. Violent hysterical sobbing came on, and her senses soon after forsook her. Richard called loudly for assistance, and the sentiments of the most humane part of the crowd having undergone a change since the failure of the ordeal, some females came forward, and took steps for her restoration. Sensibility having returned, a cloak was wrapped around her, and she was conveyed to a neighbouring cottage and put to bed, where her stiffened limbs were chafed and warm drinks administered, and it began to be hoped that no serious consequences would ensue. Meanwhile, a catastrophe had well-nigh occurred in another quarter. With eyes flashing with fury, Nicholas Asherton pushed aside the crowd, and made his way to the bank whereupon Master Potts stood. Not liking his looks, the little attorney would have taken to his heels, but finding escape impossible, he called upon Baggerly to protect him. But he was instantly in the forcible grip of the squire, who shouted, "'I'll teach you, mongrel hound, to play tricks with gentlemen!' "'Master Nicholas!' cried the terrified and half-strangled attorney. "'My very good sir, I entreat you to let me alone. This is a breach of the King's peace, sir, assault and battery under aggravated circumstances, and punishable with ignominious corporal penalties, besides fine and imprisonment, sir. I take you to witness the assault, Master Baggerly. I shall bring my ac-ac-action. Ah! Ah!' "'Then you shall have something to bring your ac-ac-action for, rascal,' cried Nicholas and seizing the attorney by the nape of the neck with one hand, and the hind wings of his doublet with the other, he cast him to a considerable distance into the river, where he fell with a tremendous splash. "'He is no wizard at any event,' laughed Nicholas, as Potts went down like a lump of lead. But the attorney was not born to be drowned, at least at this period of his career. On rising to the surface, a few seconds after his immersion, he roared lustily for help, but would infallibly have been carried over the weir, 
if Jem Device had not flung him the rope now disengaged from Nance Redfern, and which he succeeded in catching. In this way he was dragged out, and as decrepit up the bank, with the wet pouring from his apparel, which now clung tightly to his lathy limbs, he was greeted by the jeers of Nicholas. "'How like you the water ordeal, eh, Master Attorney? No occasion for a second trial, I think.' If Jem Device had known his own interest, he would have left you to fatten the cold reels. But he will find it out in time. "'You will find it out too, Master Nicholas,' rejoined Potts, clapping on his wet cap. "'Take me to the dragon quickly, good fellow,' he added to Jem Device, "'and I will recompense thee for thy pains, as well as for the service thou hast just rendered me. I shall have rheumatism in my joints, pains in my loins, and rheum in my head.' "'Oh, dear! Oh, dear!' "'In which case you will not be able to pay Mother Demdike your purposed visit to-morrow,' jeered Nicholas. "'You forgot you were to arrest her and bring her before a magistrate.' "'Thy arm, good fellow, thy arm!' said Potts to Jem Device. "'To the fiend with thee!' cried Jem, shaking him off roughly. "'The squire's right. Would he had let thee drown?' "'What?' "'Have you changed your mind already, Jem?' cried Nicholas, in a taunting tone. "'You'll have your grandmother's thanks for the service you've rendered her, lad.' <laughs> "'But matter of two pins, I'd pitch him in again,' growled Jem, eyeing the attorney askance. "'No, no, Jem,' observed Nicholas. "'Things must take their course. "'What's done is done. "'But if Master Potts be wise, he'll take himself out of court without delay.' "'You'll be glad to get me out of court one of these days, squire,' muttered Potts. "'And so will you too, Master James Device. "'A day of reckoning will come for both. Heavy reckoning. "'Oh!' oh he added, shivering. "'How oh, my teeth chatter!' "'Make what haste you can to the dragon,' cried the good-natured squire. "'Get your clothes dried, and bid John Law brew you a bottle of strong sack. "'Swallow it scalding hot, and you'll never look behind you.' "'Nor before me either,' retorted Potts. "'Scalding sack! This bloodthirsty squire has a new design upon my life.' "'And go with it to the dragon, mister,' said Bagley. "'Lay now me.' "'Thank you, friend,' replied Potts, taking his arm. "'A word at parting, Master Nicholas. This is not the only discovery of witchcraft I have made. I have another case, somewhat nearer home. Ha!' <laughs> With this he hobbled off in the direction of the alehouse, his steps being traceable along the dusty road like the course of a watering-cart. "'And go after him,' growled Jem. "'No, you won't, lad,' rejoined Nicholas. "'And if you'll take my advice, you'll get out of Whaley as fast as you can. You'll be safer on the heath of Pendleton here when Sir Ralph and Master Roger Nowell come to know what's taken place. And mind this, Sarah, the hounds will be out in the forest to-morrow.' "'Do you heed?' Jem growled something in reply, and, seizing his little sister's hand, strode off with her towards his mother's dwelling, uttering not a word by the way. Having seen Nance Redfern conveyed to the cottage, as before mentioned, Richard Asherton, regardless of the wet state of his own apparel, now joined his cousin, the squire, and they walked to the abbey together, conversing on what had taken place, while the crowd dispersed, some returning to the bowers in the churchyard, and others to the green, their merriment in no wise damped by the recent occurrences, which they looked upon as part of the day's sport. As some of them passed by, laughing, singing, and dancing, 
Richard Asherton remarked, "'I can scarcely believe these to be the same people I so lately saw in the churchyard. They then seemed totally devoid of humanity.' "'Sure, they're human enough,' rejoined Nicholas. "'But you cannot expect them to show mercy to a witch any more than to a wolf or other savage and devouring beast.' "'But the means taken to prove her guilt were as absurd as iniquitous,' said Richard, "'and savour of the barbarous ages. "'If she had perished, all concerned in the trial would have been guilty of murder.' "'But no judge would condemn them,' returned Nicholas, "'and they have the highest authority in the realm to uphold them. "'As to leniency to witches, in a general way I would show none. "'Traitors alike to God and man and bond-slaves of Satan.' They are out of the pale of Christian charity. No criminal, however great, is out of the pale of Christian charity, replied Richard. But such scenes as we have just witnessed are a disgrace to humanity and a mockery of justice. In seeking to discover and punish one offence, a greater is committed. Suppose this poor young woman really guilty. What then? Our laws are made for protection as well as punishment of wrong. She should be arraigned, convicted, and condemned before punishment. "'Our laws admit of torture, Richard,' observed Nicholas. "'True,' said the young man, with a shudder, "'and it is another relic of a ruthless age. "'But torture is only allowed under the eye of the law, "'and can be inflicted by none but its sworn servants. "'But supposing this poor young woman innocent of the crime imputed to her, "'which I really believe her to be,' "'How, then, will you excuse the atrocities to which she has been subjected?' "'I do not believe her innocent,' rejoined Nicholas. "'Her relationship to a notorious witch and her fabrication of clay images make her justly suspected.' "'Then let her be examined by a magistrate,' said Richard. "'But even then woe betide her. "'When I think that Alison Device is liable to the same atrocious treatment "'in consequence of her relationship to Mother Demdike, I can scarce contain my indignation. Ah, it is unlucky for her, indeed, rejoined Nicholas, but of all Nancy's assailants, the most infuriated was Alison's brother, Jem Device. I saw it, cried Richard, an uneasy expression passing over his countenance. Would that she could be removed from that family. To what purpose? demanded Nicholas quickly. "'Her family are more likely to be removed from her "'if Master Potts stay in the neighbourhood.' "'Poor girl!' exclaimed Richard, "'and he fell into a reverie which was not broken "'till they reached the abbey. "'To return to Jem Device, "'on reaching the cottage, "'the ruffian flung himself into a chair, "'and for a time seemed lost in reflection. "'At last he looked up, "'and said gruffly to Jennet, who stood watching him, "'See if mother be come home.' "'Ay, ay, I'm here, Jem,' said Elizabeth Device, opening the inner door and coming forth. "'So, ye yeah, have been swimming Nance Redfern, lad, eh? I'm glad on it.' <laughs> Jem gave her a significant look, upon which she motioned Jennet to withdraw, and the injunction being complied with, though with evident reluctance by the little girl, she closed the door upon her. "'Now, Jem, what hast got to say to me, lad, eh?' demanded Elizabeth, stepping up to him. "'No great deal, mother,' he replied. "'But I counsel you to look well after yourself. "'But are in danger.' "'I knows it, lad, I knows it,' replied Elizabeth. "'But for my own part I'm no afeard. "'They dunna touch me. 
and if they'd done, I can defend myself real well. Here's a letter to thy grandmother, she added, giving him a sealed packet. Take care on it. From Mistress Nutter, I suppose, asked Jem. Aye, who else should it be from? rejoined Elizabeth. Your grandmother will have enough to do to-night, and so we knew too, Jem, letting alone the walk from here to Malkin Tower. Well, give me my supper, and I'll set out, rejoined Jem. So you have seen Mistress Nutter? I found her in the Abbey Garden, replied Elizabeth, and we had some talk together about the boundary line of the Ruffley estate and other matters and as she spoke she set a cold pasty with oat-cakes, cheese, and butter before her son, and next proceeded to draw him a jug of ale. "'What other matters dun you mean, mother?' inquired Jem, attacking the pasty. "'What it out relating to that little London lawyer, Mr. Potts?' "'Thou's it, it, Jem,' replied Elizabeth, seating herself near him. "'That Potts means to visit thy grandmother to-morrow.' "'Well,' said Jem grimly, "'And arrest her,' pursued Elizabeth. "'Easily said,' laughed Jem scornfully. "'But no quite so easily done.' "'No, no quite, Jem,' responded Elizabeth, joining in the laugh. "'Specially when the old dame's prepared as she win be now. "'Bots may set out to that jury, boy, when I come back again,' remarked Jem in a sombre tone. "'Wait till you've seen your grandmother afore you do out, lad,' said Elizabeth. "'I wait,' added a voice. "'What's that?' demanded Jem, laying down his knife and fork. Elizabeth did not answer in words, but her significant looks were quite response enough for her son. "'Ask your wind, mother,' he said in an altered tone. After a pause employed in eating, he added, "'Did Mistress Nutter put many questions to you about Alison?' "'Morner enough, lad,' replied Elizabeth. "'But what had I to tell her? "'She praised her booty, and said how unlike she were to Janet and thee, lad, "'and wondered how I come to have such a daughter, and many other things beside. "'And what could I say to it, except—' "'Except what, mother?' "'Except she were my child, just as much as Janet and thee.' "'Oh!' exclaimed Jem. "'Oh!' Um, echoed the voice that had previously spoken. "'Jem looked at his mother.' and took a long pull at the ale-jug. "'Any more messages to Malkin Tower?' he asked, getting up. "'Nay, mother will understand,' replied Elizabeth. "'Bid her be on her guard, for the enemies abroad.' "'Main in pots,' said Jem. "'Main in pots,' answered the voice. "'There are strange echoes here,' said Jem, looking round suspiciously. At this moment Tib came from under a piece of furniture, where he had apparently been lying, and rubbed himself familiarly against his legs. "'I needn't be so feared about happening to ye, mother,' said Jem, patting the cat's back. "'Tib will take care on you.' "'Aye, aye,' replied Elizabeth, bending down to pat him. "'He's a trusty cat.' But the ill-tempered animal would not be propitiated but erected his back and menaced her with his claws. "'Yeah, I offended him, mother,' said Jem. "'One word afore I part. Are you quite sure Potts did not overhear your conversation with Mistress Nutter?' "'Why do you ask, Jem?' she replied. "'For something the knave threw out to Squire Nicholas just now,' rejoined Jem. 
He said he'd another case of witchcraft near her home. What could he mean? What indeed? cried Elizabeth quickly. Look at Tib, exclaimed her son. As he spoke, the cat sprang towards the inner door, and scratched violently against it. Elizabeth immediately raised the latch, and found Janet behind it with a face like scarlet. "'You've been listening, you young eavesdropper!' cried Elizabeth, boxing her ears soundly. "'Take that for your pains, and that! Touch me again, and Master Potts shall know all I need,' said the little girl, repressing her tears. Elizabeth regarded her angrily, but the looks of the child were so spiteful that she did not dare to strike her. She glanced, too, at Tib, but the uncertain cat was now rubbing himself in the most friendly manner against Janet. "'You shall pay for this, lass, presently,' said Elizabeth. "'Best na provoke me, mother,' rejoined Janet, in a determined tone. "'If ye done, our secret's shun out. I know why Jem's going to Malkin Tower to neat, and why you're afeard of Master Potts. Hold thy tongue, and I'd choke thee, little pest!' cried her mother fiercely. Janet replied with a mocking laugh, while Tib rubbed against her more fondly than ever. "'Leave her alone,' interposed Jem, "'and I mun be off. So fare ye will, mother, and you too, Janet.' And with this he put on his cap, seized his cudgel, and quitted the cottage. End of chapter 6